Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast dedicated to the Criterion Collection and cinema. I'm Nate Myers, joined by Matt Peterson, as we cobble together our thoughts on David Lean's adaptation of Hobson's Choice. Set in late Victorian England, Hobson's Choice is a cinematic telling of Harold Brighouse's stage play, detailing the intricacies of Henry Horatio Hobson, played affably by Charles Lawton, and his three daughters. A successful proprietor of a modest boot shop, Mr. Hobson leans heavily upon his daughters to manage the affairs of the shop as he hobbles along to the local pub to imbibe some spirits. Eldest daughter Maggie, performed by Brenda DeBanzi with wit and cunning, hatches a plot that will upend Hobson's world as she connives to marry the shop's talented cobbler, Will Mossop, played by lean regular John Mills. A comedy of manners and human foibles, Lean's film is an economic adaptation of its source material that places its cast in an intricate tale of love, business, and family. A critical and commercial success upon its release in 1954, Hobson's choice is vintage British comedy that blends stage and screen sensibilities for an entertaining show. Released by the Criterion Collection on DVD in 2009 and currently available on the Criterion Channel for streaming, Its whimsy and humanity are available for new audiences to discover. Join Matt and me as we kick up our feet and discuss Hobson's Choice. Well, Matt, after our last screening with uh, about two hours of animals being killed with the moment of truth... (laughs) As that movie was coming to an end, I thought, I want to pick a movie for next month that'll be maybe just a little lighter and a little more enjoyable. So I'm going to kick it over to you here and see, did I succeed in my pick? Yeah, I think you did. Um, this is a delightful film. I, I really enjoyed this. And it it was just refreshing to sit down and watch something that's just very lighthearted and, and entertaining and, and just very, very well-written, right? I mean, this is just a... It's based on a stage play, so I, I'm sure the source material um, is... You know, deserves a lot of credit here, but uh, I, I think when you're on a diet of a lot of modern contemporary films, going back to a film like this is always just very refreshing, right? And the craftsmanship here... Uh, the level of uh, performance, the uh, it, it's just a pleasure to to sit uh, sit down and watch a film like this again, and it, it just reminded me of how many great British films there are, you know, in this era. Uh, and Criterion, fortunately, I think uh, uh, hasn't really ignored this this era, and they've uh, put quite a few of these films out, but. Uh, yeah, is this the first time you've seen this film? This is my first viewing. It is for mine as well. Uh, you know, I'm a big David Lean fan, and we'll probably get to him in a little bit here, just as a director. Um, but I, the, you know, I think it's it's enjoyable to watch older comedy because there's a kind of innocence to it that I think is lacking in comedies that are coming out today. There's just a kind of mean spiritedness and a cynicism that exists in a lot of comedies. I was just thinking about this film. If it was being made today, I just think there'd be a certain kind of dastardliness given to Henry Hobson, right? I think he'd be played 
differently. He'd be directed and staged just yeah. slightly differently to give a little bit more menace. And there'd probably be a little bit more of a, I don't know, almost like a sense of we need to put a message into this film. Here's just a delightful film, like you said. And it's really just something where you can simply enjoy it. It's not to say that it doesn't have some some substance to it, because I think it does. But it's not going to let its themes or its, its you know, kind of... Uh, purpose getting the way of you having the sense of fun. And maybe a good place for us to jump off here is just that British sensibility of comedy uh, mm-hmm. because it's different than an American sense. And we don't really wind up talking about a lot of comedies on this podcast. Uh, we have, but it's, you know, more we more tend to lean into dramatic fare. But comedy is very difficult to do. And I think this film is a very good instantiation of British humor. And particularly the fact that it, it, it handles the question of class, which is not really something Americans deal with. I mean, it's, it is certainly present in America, but not the same way as it is in England, right? And the, the way it just handles the, the question about uh, this cobbler, this proprietor, uh, the role of a woman society uh, so astutely, and of course the setting in late, in late Victorian England is also just a, a nice little touch that gives this film, it gives the film a kind of whimsy, I guess would be the best word for it, yeah. in which you just really kind of appreciate how the writing, how the acting really just flesh out these characters and make them quite lovable. Even if you're kind of banging your head against the wall about some of it, you just find them all kind of lovable. Yeah, I appreciated how the film really wasn't trying to be overtly revisionist about some of the themes you touched on, you know, just the, the role of employer versus employee, the, the role of women, uh, women in the workplace and, uh, father daughter relationships, all these things, which by today's standards, you know, what we're seeing in the film are, would be considered antiquated or backwards or however you want to characterize it. Uh, even though this film was made in the mid 1950s, it, it really kind of embraced those truths of that period, uh, not only for comedic relief, but also for real substance in terms of the drama of the story. And and, and there's some you know emotional content here, I think, especially uh, the relationship between Henry and his daughters, uh, just how they're trying to reconcile their own identities and places in the world and uh, trying to balance between caring for each other as family members, but also the daughters wanting to go off and have, have their own lives. And, and there's a lot of complexity here because, I mean, there's jealousies between the daughters and uh, there, there's a whole host of uh, little rivalries that we see throughout the film. But... Especially the idea of, uh, as I had mentioned, employee versus uh, employer. You know, so I mean, here's a boot shop that depends entirely on the craftsmen, right, to produce these boots. Without them, there's no shop. And where are the most important people <laughs> in the business place? They're under the floorboards, you know. So I. I'm not privy to how workshops in Victorian England were set up. Maybe that's the way things worked. 
but it also is a very symbolic, very uh, powerful image, right? That the the workers that are really producing the products, uh, making the business happen, are uh, being stepped on in a way, right? By by being placed below the floorboard. So I thought that was a pretty powerful image, and to see uh, Will Mossop's character really be elevated initially against his will, uh, but really given the chance to uh, realize his own potential through Maggie and through her, what begins as a manipulation, but also turns into something more genuine. Uh, It was just a a real kind of delightful arc to witness. So uh, yeah, very, very enjoyable story for sure. Yeah, I think your points are well taken there that, you know, Will Mossop's development as a character and his movement from being this very reserved and a man who's quite aware of his of his social standing right? very naive uh, that he yeah. doesn't really have a place to talk right uh and you know that he slowly moves into a different position but at the same time still remains the same personality it's not like he becomes an entirely different person and you kind of go well how did he become this it's he he still is that kind of reserved and insecure man at the end, but you've seen a growth and him become comfortable with his talent and recognizing the power his talent gives to him and the the kind of command he can make upon the owner of the shop, right? Uh, that, that he realizes uh, that he is needed uh, and that he has some say in what will happen. It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a delightful uh, and a very uh, charming movement that takes place with his character. And I think your points also well taken about just the the symbol uh, the symbolic nature of having how it's staged, right? Being down in the basement, right? And of course, when they build the the new shop, when Maggie and Will move off and start their own shop in competition to Hobson, uh, it's it's also still down in the basement, right? You know, so that sense of being lower. And I'm assuming that's got to be somewhat connected, but also obviously purposeful, right, to how they're deciding to do it. But I also like it because it does make this movie, which is clearly, you know, when I saw that it was based on a play, I wasn't surprised because it is such a limited amount of sets yeah. that it's going to. But it also does give it a cinematic feel. I mean, just the fact that, okay, you go up and you go down and the way the camera kind of captures some of those, uh, you know, those little different uh features of the place, right, of Hobson's shop, does give it a cinematic feel while still maintaining its heritage as a as a stage production. And maybe that's just something to, to reflect on here for a moment is just this question about how to adapt stage to screen. Uh, it's something that's obviously been done ever since movies were made. And I think some films do it very well. Some things have been rather unsuccessful in this as well. Uh, but this strikes me as a kind of almost a, a textbook example of how to do it. It doesn't feel too too loyal or too uh, reverent towards the source material that it treats it like it's just basically a, a filmed stage production. It feels very much like a movie. Uh, the way the cinematography, the set design, the framing, the composition, the moving of the camera, all that feels very much carefully considered and is making use of the medium but at the same time it's also not too wildly opened up there's always a tendency i think when adapting a stage play to overly 
cinematize it, right? Where all mm-hmm. of a sudden you create random weird scene transitions just to kind of make it seem like it's not all set in one place. And this one, I think, handles the the balancing act of that very well. I'm not sure if, if you have a thought about that in general or about specifically how this movie does it. Yeah, I, I think in general, I, I would agree with you. It, it seems like films adapted from stage plays tend to go one extreme or the other, right? It's it's either very, uh, very much the proscenium, you know, sort of uh, emphasizing the limited locations and the filmmaking may not be particularly dynamic and it's generally quite focused on the dialogue and the performances and the actors versus the cinematic language. Or, yeah, it just takes it completely in the opposite direction. You know, there's I can think of a lot of Shakespeare adaptations that that really try to increase the scope uh, of of the visuals in particular to to really shed that idea that oh this is this is just a play it, it's it's something more now because it's a movie right and yeah I mean this finds I think a happy medium uh, as you said there's limited locations and uh, it does I mean it's clear that we're on a set for most of the film. But it does move outside, and there's some interesting, you know, location exterior shooting, and and I, I think the camera movement in particular really elevates this film into a film, right? So there's some interesting use of the moving camera that really kind of surprised me at, at various points in this film. But it's not distracting. It's not, you know, I, in the, in the true David Lean tradition, it's very tasteful. You know, it's it's well mm-hmm. chosen. It uh, emphasizes the right moments or, or it gives a sense of propulsion when the film kind of needs it and provides that extra boost of energy. And, uh, yeah, it's just just well-crafted, well-balanced film uh, stylistically. Well, a good example of that is, you know, when uh, the very funny scene, I, I would say Charles Lawton gives a very uh, physical performance here. I mean, he shows yeah, that he's sure. very good at, at physical comedy. And, you know, he's a famous actor who's been around for decades, well, obviously now long time deceased, but had been an actor for decades by the time that he was in this movie and uh, has been a very famous actor uh, for both stage and screen. But his performance is, is very physical and they make good use of that in this film. I mean, he, he really does command every scene he's in uh, and that scene where he's coming home drunkenly uh, from the Moonrakers, uh, which I just, every time they talked about the pub and they named it the Moonrakers, I couldn't help but think about the horrible James Bond movie. I, uh, I had the same it's, issue. It's forever yeah. been ruined. That title's forever been ruined. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but when he's walking home from that and he stumbles, of course, conveniently into the the sobriety, the uh, the abstinence uh, shopkeeper's uh, place, the Beanstalk Company, uh, when he's falling down, right, the camera follows with him and really highlights and accentuates the verticalness of the fall in a way that no stage production could, right? So all the setup to it is kind of with him dancing around this, and you're kind of waiting for him to fall in and will he or won't he and all those things. They, they handle that very nice, but then they add this extra flourish of that one shot with him falling down, yeah. which... I mean, you know, an audience today looking at it would probably say, boy, that seems pretty tame or muted, you know, compared to, you know, maybe when it came out. But it just shows a visual flair. But like you said, not one that's particularly distracting. You know, David Lean was a very tasteful director and a man who really 
clearly understood how to make movies and when to employ cinematic technique and when to emphasize uh, character and dialogue. You know, he really always found a nice balance in those things. Uh, and he does that yet again here in this particular movie. Yeah, for sure. I, that shot you mentioned, <laughs> it, it looks like he's falling about 100 feet or something. You know, it's, it's it does. It's, yes. <laughs> like, I actually thought that maybe he was going to be deceased after that moment. But um, I, yeah, I didn't think the film would necessarily go that way. But I, I, I think it's emphasized, I mean, not only for a comedic effect, but uh, probably just to reflect his uh, drunken state. Um, but I, I think it's one of the few optical shots in the film. Uh, but there's, yeah, there, there's a real sense of, you know, energy, I think, to the whole film, too, that I really appreciated. And, and the performances really have a lot to do with that. Uh, as you said, Lawton is, is really strong, but, uh, I mean, we should talk about John Mills as well. He's, he plays Will Mossop and what a great, just understated performance from him. You know, I mean, he's, as you said, he just starts out as a very simple, uh, naive individual and, and quite innocent in many ways. And he's just, wants to make his boots and he's happy with that. He's, he's happy to be under the floorboards. Um, and I, it, it kind of calls into question, you know, what Maggie does with him, you know, in the first place, is it, is she, is she, is what she is doing ethical? You know, that kind of occurred to me at various points, like, you know, is she just using this man to, uh, for her own purposes, to elevate herself, uh, to uh, to put herself in an environment where she can be the headstrong type of person that that she wants to be, and I suppose initially that that's how it starts, but it clearly evolves into a real connection between the two of them, and and a very interesting kind of synergistic relationship that they develop. Uh, any any thoughts on on kind of that that trajectory or that transformation just in terms of the the relationship between the two of them? Well, it's one of my favorite aspects of this movie, actually. Yeah. Uh, the way Maggie is played and the way she is developed as a character throughout the film. Uh, she obviously, you know, that very first scene, you know, Henry, uh, Henry's coming home drunk and. She makes the joke about how it's good that he only has to do his speeches for the Masons once a month, right? <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, it's just that, you know, she has this kind of no-nonsense element to where you get the characterization of her as an old maid. As a matter of fact, that opening scene, not knowing the story, I was, was presuming it might be a, it might be a wife, right? Yeah. As opposed to a, a daughter, because she does, she's older, right? And she's... She's thought to be an old maid and that, you know, Henry has no intention of even trying to marry her off. He assumes she'll always be there uh, to help him run the shop uh, with him being a widower and then her being an old maid. Uh, so I do really like how it's developed and the fact that she really does have this great business mind, right? And she understands the quality that Mossop has as, as a cobbler, how he's the real talent, and we see that, of course, displayed with the the rich patron that comes in and says, wherever you go, I want to know. These are the best boots I've ever had. 
right? So, you know, you see the, the fact that she recognizes something her father does not recognize about him. And she understands that the two of them together will make a great business, right? So that he, yes, will be the one that can build the shoes or the boots. She is the one that knows how to sell them. And those two qualities together will make great success. And it does strike you at first as being purely a matter of, I want to go out on my own. I don't want to be in this position of caring for my father anymore. Uh, and I just want to kind of maneuver my way out of this. But as you see the story develop, you know, you recognize that she does seem to have a genuine care for uh, Will. And she does seem to actually even be a good daughter, right? I mean, she's the one that sort of has engineered everything. And that's kind of a the the... the the wit of the film, you know, the, the phrase Hobson's choice, the title is an actual expression mm -hmm. uh, that is meant to communicate when someone is given the appearance of having a choice, but doesn't really have one, right? That's, that's what they call a Hobson's choice. And so this film is kind of her setting up a series of Hobson's choices, right? Where it appears everybody has some sort of choice, but she's, she set it up to come about the way it will be. Right. And I really love, that yes, she has this kind of cunning, but at the same time, she's still a good-natured person. You know, and I think that I was getting at my earlier point of why this film feels so different than something made today. There isn't any sense of cynicism. There isn't a sense of nihilism. There's just a sense of goodness, and that's something delightful to watch and really charming to see. Yeah, she really has a motherly quality to her, right? I mean. Which Even you for her sisters, right? For her younger sisters. Yeah, you, which that. you really wouldn't, you wouldn't expect when you first see her in the film. I mean, she just comes across as very cold and calculating, and you know, she's running the shop with an iron fist kind of feel to her character. But yeah, as the film progresses, you realize that she's had to really adopt this motherly role, uh, especially since her mother had passed away. And it's heavily implied that, well, even the doctor says it at one point toward the end of the film that Hobson is, is the kind of man that needs to have a woman around. You know, it's like you need someone to keep you in, in line, keep you in check. And, and I think Hobson recognizes that, too, which is why for as much as he complains, he's quite terrified to be on his own, I think. Right. And. He doesn't want his daughters to be married off, and he wants them to take care of him, even though he treats them poorly. Um, and and you know we learn that he hasn't even paid them wages, you know, for for how many years they've been working at the shop. So it's this really complicated sort of relationship, and and yeah, Maggie's actions could easily be misconstrued as overly manipulative or even, you know, um, vindictive or vengeful at times. But um, it, the film manages to, I think, reveal what's in her heart in a very interesting way, uh, especially when we see kind of that pivotal scene toward the end when um, Hobson's been you know, sued basically for damages after falling into that pit. And he comes to... Which is one of my favorite little things in the movie, by the way, the, the fact that he's, he's served <laughs> summons 
uh, to court because he drunkenly falls into the pit for for trespassing. <laughs> yeah, as he's, as he's crawling out of the pit, no less the the yes. courier is like <laughs> waiting for him with with the uh, the notice, which is pretty funny. But he he comes to to Maggie for help, right? Because Maggie knows that he's not going to go to a lawyer because he's too cheap. So uh, he's going to come to her. And she sets up this whole situation to get him to agree to let his other daughters be married off. And it's it's just a fun uh, scene to see this all play out and to kind of see her plan get revealed as it goes along. And, and we as the audience catch on to it, I think, before everything is really laid out on the table. Uh, but it's it's just... A real delight to see it play out, especially uh, watching Hobson's reaction. And, and there's a certain point where he just has this kind of resignation that, like, okay, I know, I know, I've been had, and I know that I've been manipulated into this moment. But he he really ultimately embraces it because he knows, I think, in his heart that he's being taken care of, right? In 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 a a way that. That he understands, you know, I, I, I think uh, there, there's just a real complexity among or between the daughters, but certainly between father and daughter. That's uh, that's really interesting here. Yeah, as much as he complains about them and as much as he talks to his friends at the, the Moonrakers uh, about how he wants to get rid of them. Yeah. He really wants them around, right? He really wants them in his life, and he really wants them to take care of him, right? I mean, he is that man that you just kind of know is never going to be able to actually figure out how to put his own two shoes on, right? He's just not going to be able to figure this out. He's not going to survive long without them, and that obviously starts to play out in this film. And he does genuinely want them to help him, right? His coming to Maggie there when he knows he's in legal trouble is proof of that, that she's the one that he really does rely upon uh, to make his way in this world. Uh, and I think that, you know, the film then ultimately winds up having a very strong sense of the need for others, right? I mean, it does have as a theme in it the, the fact that we do need other people and other people make us better. That's one of the things I really love about the the love story that develops between Will and Maggie. The two of them actually do make one another better through this movie, mm-hmm. right? Uh, she maybe does soften a little bit her edge, and he grows into himself, right? And they just become better people, and that's a really great thing to see. Yeah, I mean, he becomes more headstrong and more confident, certainly, but not uh, not in such a way that's not believable. I mean, you, you pointed out earlier that he doesn't, his character isn't completely transformed, right? We we still see that he's kind of that meek, gentle person, but he's gained the courage to step up and and stand up for himself when he has to. And yeah, it's really that scene yeah. at the end of the film where they're debating about the the name of the new boot shop. I think where that's fully revealed, where he's standing up to Hobson, but also to Maggie, right? And Maggie, she has it in in her mind that the uh, the name of the shop should be one thing and, and Will wants it to be another. And he really stands his ground and and Maggie uh, gives into that. You know, she she recognizes that, you know, marriage is a give and take and 
And that's something I, I don't think we would have seen from her at the beginning of the film by any stretch of the imagination. So it's a, it's a really interesting moment, but I, I, well, he, he doesn't lose his goodness in it. Right. I mean, I think that's, what's, you know, so endearing about this particular story is he does not become corrupted by anything. He just continues to be himself, even as he becomes more sure of himself, right? And I think that's really is uh, a tribute to John Mills' performance. I mean, it's subtle things that they do. I mean, his beginning, you know, he's obviously shown mostly very dirty. He's working down in the shop, and his hair is even styled a little differently. It's not like he gets a whole different haircut or something like that by the end of the film, but it's just a little more clean, right? And you see him kind of growing into this. And I, I thought that particular scene where you see it's on their wedding night after everyone's left, the sisters and the soon-to-be brothers-in-law have left, uh, when Will is you know, taking, you know, you, you assume he's wearing a tux and that he takes off, you realize he's not, and it's just kind of a false tux, right? They don't really have the money for it. Mm-hmm. And how he kind of sets it up on the mantle, and he's, you know, you kind of realize, you know, yeah, he has the appearance of being more than who he is, but he still is, at his core, a cobbler. He still is this working man, uh, but he is able to start living up to that image that is presented there on that wedding night, right? And I think that's a really a wonderful little moment that this, the film has there as he's carefully arranging the little pieces to make it look like he has French cuffs and all these different things. Uh, the way he arranges them on that a mantle is really kind of charming. Yeah, I was actually thinking that's a garment that uh, should be brought back. Just the the collar with the shirt front that's you know really stiff and flat, and just you know looks sharp underneath a, uh, a sport coat or a suit suit coat. Uh, <laughs> why, why don't we still the have tux? Yeah, why don't we still have those? That, that kind of uh, as long as you don't have to take off your jacket, it kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it works, right? Yeah. <laughs> But I, I, I wanted to mention, too, just the, the comedic sensibility here that David Lean has is is very effective. I mean, there's a real visual flair and kind of a, a visual comedy throughout this film, too. I, I think about that whole sequence where they're setting up the um, their new shop in that cellar and when Maggie's going out and and buying all this furniture and and there's this huge line of workmen that come down the steps, right? Like there's a, a painter and a sign maker and all these, all these people that they need to get this place up and running. It's like, she goes out, she gets all these people, lines them all up, walks them all in in a straight line. Uh, so there's a real kind of visual sense of comedy, uh, to how all that plays out too. And I, I think that elevates this, you know, beyond the stage play territory as well, just kind of taking those visual flourishes to um, uh, to give that kind of spirited sort of comedic sense to this film. So I appreciated that as well. Well, maybe that's a good transition for us to to focus in a little bit here on David Lean. As you know, I've I've often said I think he's the greatest director uh, to ever work. You know, it's a bold claim, uh, but I've always thought of him as truly being that. He's of course known for what he did in his later part of his career, really shortly after this. You know, he starts, uh, just a few years later, he does The Bridge of the River Kwai, and then he spends the rest of his career career doing 
major epics. He doesn't make that many more movies, right? Because yeah. these epics take several years to make. And that's what people first think of now. But prior to that, he did these smaller films, right? He directed a lot of Noel Coward work uh, that was made into films. Some very uh, quiet domestic dramas like Brief Encounter. Uh, Dickens adaptations, Great Expectations, Oliver Twist. This comes towards the end of that period of his career where he, career where he was not shooting widescreen, where he was shooting black and white before he did this uh, Technicolor, Cinerama kinds of motion pictures. And I think you see some of the elements of both at work in this, right? You see the the skill he'd honed over the previous films, and he had started as an editor, so you know he has a, a keen sense of, of pacing uh, that really, I think, plays off well here. But you also do start to see some of the elements that will appear in later films. There's a lot of stuff here, actually, with how the camera moves around through the shop that reminded me very much of how he directs mini scenes in Dr. Zhivago and how he uses the camera in that film. Yeah. You couldn't think of really two more different settings for a movie than this in Dr. Zhivago, but he does happen to have a sense of how to use the camera that is always inherently cinematic. And I think he really does reveal himself in these, these smaller films, these maybe more forgotten films of his, uh, to be one of the true premier talents of 20th century cinema and to have an understanding of how to direct the material he's given. You know, he he makes all the right choices, you know, uh, here. He makes all the right choices when he's given a script like The Bridge on the River Kwai. He is able to bounce between these different kinds of filmmaking quite effectively. Uh, so I guess maybe I'll just hand over to you, Matt, uh, your thoughts on David Lean in general and his work on this particular movie, if you have anything you want to say. Yeah, I'm a huge David Lean fan as well. I mean, I I don't know if I'd go so far as to say, you know, he's the greatest filmmaker of all time, but I'd put him in the top five easily. Um, You know, as you said, he's just more well-known for his epics later on. and, And Lawrence of Arabia, I mean, I think is in both of our top five lists of all time, if, if I'm not mistaken. Um, mm-hmm. and that, that's a film we're going to have to examine in more detail, uh, someday. And I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure we will for probably a, a deep focus episode. But, yes. I, I imagine since it's its 60th anniversary this year, we will, we will come back and visit David Lean before the year is out. Yeah, we're going to have to. And I, I mean, that film's a masterpiece. It's one of those films I, I that never gets old for me. So I have the deepest respect for him as a filmmaker. Uh, Bridger and the River Kwai, Dr. Zhivago, big fan of those films as well. And it's easy to forget about this era, right? And, and you mentioned the Noel Coward adaptations and Criterion put on a box set of those films as well. Uh, so that material is out there. And, you know, everyone assumes that he's just this kind of widescreen epic director. It's very revealing to go back and look at these these early films because as you said you, you do see those directorial hallmarks really kind of starting to show themselves and and it, it's interesting because he's he's such a great director but he you know he, he's not really in 
a director in the auteur sense in many ways, right? I mean, you, you look at his films and, and they're just so expertly crafted, but but they're never very showy or over the top. He, he doesn't really have a directorial trademark in terms of his style. I mean, if you really kind of got granular about it, I, I suppose you could pull out, uh, well, he likes you know this kind of camera movement or he likes this kind of close-up or this kind of you know, match cuts or editing. Uh, but he he's a director that, to me, always feels like he respects the material enough not to put himself in the foreground, you know? And that, that's one thing I love about him as a director, that he he really understands the material that he's putting on screen and he wants that to be the focus. He wants, you know, his actors, the characters, the story, the spectacle to be the focus and not David Lean, the director, to be the focus. And that, that's one thing that I, I always think of uh, when, when I see his pictures and and I, whether or not he was a modest man in real life, I don't really know. Uh, but his his filmmaking kind of conveys a, a sense of modesty and a lack of pretension that that I think is really worth remembering. He was a notorious perfectionist, mm-hmm. right? There's those directors that are kind of perfectionists, like. A you know, one that's still working is David Fincher. You know, Stanley Kubrick is famously of this kind of thing where you just do however many takes till you get exactly what you want. And, you know, he he was that kind of a filmmaker. But you don't find in him, when you actually watch the final product, the, the, the traces of that perfectionism, the same way you might in some of those other films, maybe those other directors I mentioned. Uh, you know, he, I think you're right, he's a, a showcase of, being a director who really understands my job is to direct the material I'm given, right? And that also means also directing his actors. I think he just regularly directs very good performances. He, His films are full of them, and this is no exception, right? I mean, uh, whether it's Brenda DeBanzi as Maggie or whether it's Charles Lawton or just those small little parts, right? He just gets good people in the right roles, and he... He works well with his actors. I understand he was a, a fairly difficult and uh, trying director for actors, uh, but he nonetheless really always seemed to get good work from them. And I think that's part of what I like about him is he does have ability to disappear into his work. It's not to say that he's, you know, certainly there are things where when you really do study his work, I think you can start to pick up on traits. How he likes to move the camera uh, is something that, you know, when I was watching this, I was like, yeah, this reminds me of what he was doing in the Charles Dickens adaptations, particularly with Great Expectations, how he liked to do some lighting and how he, he liked to decorate the set and kind of give it a certain kind of claustrophobia even, right? And he does really like to move things around in the frame uh, and really accentuate the visual imagery through the, the set direction. Uh, so there's things like that you'll notice with him. But otherwise, you know, you don't really find yourself being reminded constantly, this is a David Lean movie. You might argue that happens a little bit more with his epics, uh, but in his earlier work, it definitely does not happen here. Uh, And it's also worth noting that he had kind of a repertoire of people that he would work with, right? So Jack Hilliard, who is the cinematographer here, also shoots later on The Bridge of the River Kwai, Malcolm Arnold. Uh, who composes the music for this, also worked with him later on The Bridge and the River Kwai and worked with him on other movies. 
he had a crew that he really liked to work with. And I think, you know, he he knows how to let them do their part. You know, Malcolm Arnold's score in this, I thought was very good. I mean, the main theme's a very charming theme that really makes you kind of feel at ease when you're watching this film, right? And uh, he's got the musical saw that plays at different parts, right? Particularly with Hobson's drunkenness that gives that kind of disorientation, but in a non-threatening way. Uh, so, you know, it's really just good craftsmanship all around in this particular movie. Yeah, and I guess for younger film fans that maybe haven't looked at his work or um, experienced it, I mean, he's he's on the short list of required directors, right? And, um, yeah, it's... I, I think important to to see these films too to really kind of understand his origins that that led him to those more famous epics later on. Yeah, I mean he's he's clearly also very British, right? I mean that's yeah. the other thing that could be lost if you're watching those later films because even though they have obviously British characters or actors in them, they feel more like American productions. This is clearly a British production. And you can see the mannerisms of the British world in this film, and that's part of what makes it so very, very nice. Yeah, it's 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 a nice contrast to uh, the moment of truth. That's for sure. <laughs> well, good. My my goal was succeeded to yeah. to move us away from watching animals being killed <laughs> repeatedly over the course of a cinema a cinematic experience. So, well, Matt, let's focus in here a little bit then on Criterion's release. Now, they, they put this out on DVD. It has not been upgraded by them uh, to Blu-ray, although a Blu-ray release does exist of it. I can't remember who, what label put out the Blu-ray of it. Uh, the DVD I do not have. I just watched this on the Criterion channel, and it's a very nice image on the channel. Uh, there's also a, a theatrical trailer with it, so it was a very minimalist release from Criterion. Um, but they did put out, you know, David Lean's work is represented in the Criterion. Obviously, the bigger, more famous ones uh, aren't in the collection, but uh, his earlier work is nicely represented here. And so I think uh, I think it was a, a good production, a good presentation of it here. I'm assuming you felt the same watching it? Yeah, it looked great on the Criterion channel. I mean, very nice high-def transfer and uh, looked like it had a restoration of some kind, so... Um, yeah, this would be a nice reissue for Blu-ray, I think. I, I was surprised it wasn't on Blu-ray, because I, I looked at the release there, too, and it was just DVD. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, um, yeah, very nicely presented. And it, it's good to see Lean in the collection. I mean, as you said, the I, I don't think his epics probably will ever be on, on Criterion because they're just, two popular films and studios I don't think would give up those titles, but, um, though Lawrence of Arabia, I guess did have a laser disc release with Criterion way back in the day. Yes. But, um, for a while there, that was considered the best home video release of it before the, the Blu-ray I think came out actually. So. Yeah. I think was that, was that, uh, predating the initial Robert Harris restoration? I'd have to, I'd have to look up the timeline of that, but, I um, thought it might have been when Harris did the restoration. Okay. That was when it came out, but I could be wrong about that. Yeah, because I, I know, he, I think he was involved in more than one 
restoration effort for that film. But yeah. um, yeah, just good good to see him in the collection. Deserves to be in the collection, obviously. And uh, yeah, maybe this will be something that'll see an upgrade soon. Yeah, I would love to see it get upgraded. I would. I'd be uh, nice to see a few extras as well. You know, Charles Lawton is just an actor who. You know, I know a little bit about him. Just you know, obviously read some things, but it'd be nice to get a, maybe a, a, some features on this if they did upgrade it to Blu-ray. Uh, talking about him uh, and just his his comedic sensibilities, because I think of him as a dramatic actor, but he's really good at comedy and he does a great job here. Yeah, definitely. Well, that brings us then, Matt, to the question. I'm sure we both uh, know where we're going to answer on this. Does Hobson's Choice belong in the Criterion Collection? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say it's worth including. Uh, certainly, David Lean, as I said, deserves to be in the collection, right? I mean, I would say that he's made better films than this, but uh, I don't think this is a waste of a spot or a waste of a spine number. So, sure, go ahead and include it. I would agree, and I think it's it's important in the sense that David Lean's an important filmmaker and it's important to see the range of his filmmaking, right? I, you know, we know his epics, but it's important to know these other works that he did prior to those. And this is a great example of his, his qualities as a director in a different context. So for that reason, I say include it. And thank you all for joining us as we discussed Hobson's Choice. Please join us again next month when we'll be discussing The Great Beauty by Paolo Sorrentino which will be premiering in April. Thank you, and keep collecting.